Hello and welcome to another episode of HeanCast. I'm Kate Kerr and today is World AIDS Day. As many of you know, HIV and AIDS devastated the bleeding disorders community due to so many people being infected through contaminated blood products. People are still fighting and campaigning for justice to this day. One of those people who's been on the front lines of campaigning for many years is Mark Ward, a community advocate and the UK Haemophilia Society's LGBT ambassador. I'm very pleased to welcome Mark to the podcast to share his personal experience and his hopes for the bleeding disorders community in the future. Hello, I'm Mark Ward and I was born with severe haemophilia A. My connection to the bleeding disorder community uh, is I'm one of contaminated blood victims seeking justice and I'm also proud to say that I'm the world's first LGBT ambassador for haemophilia. Great, so I think certainly people who are anything to do with the Haemophilia Society will know of you as a huge advocate for the community because of the contaminated blood scandal. So could you just share with us a little bit about your experience of what it was like growing up with haemophilia and then finding out that you were or had received contaminated blood? And particularly because we're doing this for World AIDS Day, the impact that had on you then? Okay. Being, being born in the, with haemophilia in the 1970s, or growing up in, with haemophilia in the 1970s, I wasn't diagnosed until my third birthday. So my mum at times was quizzed about the bruising and everything and they had to yeah had to face quite a bit of uh, finger pointing and then because of the treatment in those days with cryocrisipitate my my parents live in Hertfordshire it meant that at that, that point in time it was over an hour in an ambulance to get to Great Ormond Street Hospital for the treatment and depending on how much blood was lost or what the bleed was then it would mean long stays in hospital I actually spent more time in hospital than I did at school. And then there was talk in the mid-70s to later 70s of factor eight, which my dad said that he didn't want me to go anywhere near, didn't, doesn't trust the Americans, he said, and didn't want any of that treatment near me. He wanted me to stay on the British cryo until we knew that everything was okay and, and give it time. And unfortunately, covertly in the middle of the night in 1977, I was put onto factor eight against my parents' wishes. When my mum then quizzed them a couple of days later, when she saw the nurse making up the factor eight instead of cryo, the reply was, oh, he's on it now. So there's no point in putting him back. Sadly, that had further, we, we know the, the results of that because of the treatment, but in a, in a weird way, it did change our lives. They said it would change our lives. And it did because it meant for the first time that we could actually go away on holidays. Um, we used to go down to Cornwall, but we went to Jersey. And then for the first time, we, we actually went to Malta because we could. And yes, yeah, school then became a bit more routine. Unfortunately, because of the joint damage by the early 80s, my target joint was my right elbow and my left knee. And I was told that in 1983, that if I didn't have an operation, I would be in a wheelchair by the time I was 21. So in 1984, I had the operation, spent six weeks in hospital. And it was as I was being wheeled out of the hospital on discharge day, my dad had parked the car outside the haemophilia centre. And you had the reception area and then you had a, a hatch that led into the treatment room where they made the treatment up at the Royal Free. 
And one of the, the sisters popped up from behind the hatch and shouted across the waiting room, Mr. and Mrs. Ward, would you like to know Mark's HIV results? Mum and dad didn't even know anything about it. So they went, yeah. And she said, positive, see you next time. And that was it. And so we went home and there wasn't a word spoken in the car on the way home. And then because of the surgery, I had to keep going back every few days for them to, to monitor me. So when I went back, we went back the following uh, week. That's really when life changed because we were told it's a need to know basis. Nobody needs to know unless it's absolutely necessary. Don't tell anybody because we can't guarantee your safety. And then they were telling us about some of the horrors that were affecting haemophiliacs across in America, houses being set on fire and things like that. The fear was there. And then I was told, and bearing in mind, I'm age 14 at this point, that they believed that I had been infected with HIV through the contaminated blood products in 1982. And I probably wouldn't live long enough to leave school. So really, it was just the clock is ticking. The impact on that, from that, I should say, the impact from that, it was, it, we were very much, and I'm laughing because thinking about it now, that in our house, we didn't actually all, all fall apart. It was just, it didn't get spoken about. And it was that sort of stiff upper lip British thing that we just carry on as normal, carry on as normal. And that's really what we did. But trying to look ahead for a life that you're not going to have or plan for a life that you're being told you're not going to have. That's, that's probably more like it. It was, it was really difficult because, like speaking to the careers advisor, everybody was going through the motions. And even my mum had to go to the headmaster every week to update him on my health and how stable I was. And if the school got a complaint, then I would be kicked out. And thankfully, nobody did complain, but we know in, in, in the UK there were some people that did. But, yeah, as I say, sitting with a careers advisor, and I'm, I said that I'm absolutely mad on aeroplanes, I'll do anything to work with aeroplanes, that's my passion. And his words to me were, get your head out of the clouds, they won't look at someone like you, think about working in a shop. And I said, I don't want to work in a shop, <laughs> I want to work with aeroplanes. And he just rolled his eyes and it was just like, yeah, I can't be bothered. So it, it, you also had this element of fear that growing up in the 70s with haemophilia, because there was always an ambulance parked outside the house, the more people that knew you, your protective bubble was bigger and it was stronger because people knew not to hit me, push me, bump me, all those things. When AIDS came along, I just had this huge target on my back that you didn't know who was going to turn, who was going to then isolate you, what stigma, what hatred you were going to face. So everything you did, trying to live, really had this dark, dark cloud, this, this shadow looming over you. And of course, in amongst all this, that you're going back and forth to the hospital. And, and even as a kid in Great Ormond Street, little boys and girls on the ward would die. So death has always been around, which is, yeah, it's heartbreaking. And so when you were told not to tell anybody, did you actually tell anybody in those very early days or was it a secret just that you kept within the family? Com completely a secret. Uh, it was it only, as I say, on, on those need-to-know bases. My mum told my aunties, but 
it was, again, when they were told, it was you can't tell anybody purely because of, to protect us. Were you then, did you then know any other boys of a similar age that also had HIV, that where you could get some sort of peer support or was it so quiet that nobody spoke about anything to anybody? No, it was completely isolated, completely. Um, and it very much, as I say, just does carry on as, as regardless kind of thing. On my 16th birthday, I actually went to school and sat an RE exam because it would give me another qualification because for me, the pursuit of working for an airline, I was going to do everything I possibly could. And I needed to have qualifications and I need to have certain things behind me to be able to do that. Uh, School, because I'd missed so much time, they put me in when we first when I like we first had to tell them I had HIV, when the boys did rugby and football, I just had to walk around the edge of the field in the cold and watch them. That then changed and they put me in with when the boys did metalwork and woodwork, I did home economics with the girls, which is a young lad and you're you're already different. You're I was already the school freak right from the word go. And so it just really again, put this bigger target for abuse because you were in with the girls. So there was all the name calling and all the homophobic stuff that was going around. Um, and then later on, I was in the I was in the third year and they put me in with the fifth year remedials. And the only thing with that is that people just thought I was stupid. When I was in hospital, rather than just laying there doing puzzles and painting and doing nothing, the lab staff would bring me biology books. So I was reading. I could tell you all the the names of the heart chambers and and different things. I could tell you medical things at the age of eight or nine, go back to school, and they were doing, for me, to spell out stupid stuff. And the same as if I would be allowed out of hospital, for a weekend or a few days, I would go to my grandparents and my nan and granddad would take me to the museums because they knew I was missing out on my education at school, but they gave me a much better education because I had the education of life and like the London Underground. They've taught me the London Underground. I have no problem finding myself anywhere on the London Underground because my nan's always with me and say so going to the museums and things. So I was, I had a much better education with that. But it, yes, it, it was really difficult. So how did you move from that little boy who had that big secret to becoming somebody who was so out there and, and engaged in the advocacy and campaigning? I, I did go on. I, I left school in May of 1985 and I joined British Airways on the YTS scheme in 1985, September of 1985. And... I went down to Gatwick and the lab lead, Tricia Herco, who was my boss, and she actually contacted Heathrow and they created a 13th place for me. It was only meant to be 12 and I was number 13. I did that for just over a year and then under Margaret Thatcher, they extended it to two years. So I was 18 months into my YTS scheme and then I was taken on a temporary contract in flight inquiries. And then I went and did another temporary contract down in cargo where I was made permanent. And so I was then flying around the world and um, lovely holidays and really just trying to live and see as much as I possibly could whilst 
the clock was still ticking. And I would say the awful thing about this is that it all sounds fabulous. And it was. I could come off of a beach in Antigua, fly back to London, go to the hospital for a review. And one of the first things they would say to me is, you're looking well, but you do know you're dying. You're going to die of AIDS. And it was this constant, oh, you've passed your driving test. That's fabulous. No point in buying a car because you're going to die. And AIDS is going to get you. And that's it. That's the thing I can't ever understand is why there had to be that constant pounding of you know death being smashed in your face. Um, because of because of all of what was going on, I was struggling with my sexuality. I didn't know was I feeling the way that I was feeling because I had hemophilia. I, I had nobody to talk to, and when I asked. At first, I was told there aren't any gay haemophiliacs, and it was implied that because I had HIV, that was why I was attracted to men. But because, <laughs> but because having just I just don't quite know what to say, so I'll say nothing, which is unlike me. <laughs> all the terrible myths that were flying around are using towels, cut me, cups, can't kiss, and all those things. But it's coming from medical professionals. But the thing was, it never really sat right with me that I don't believe that I'm the only one. And from there, I actually had friends that I worked with at British Airways, and one of them said to me about that I'd been out in London on the gay scene, and I said, no. And he said, I've got friends there. We'll we go out one Saturday, and that's what we did. And from there on, all of a sudden, we had a bit of this social life, but my sole focus because I was being told I was dying, my focus was solely on British Airways and doing my job. I literally lived and worked and breathed British Airways and my job. My feelings about sexuality or even sex was just completely held down because that wasn't important to me. And the thing was, even thinking about getting close to somebody, I didn't want to hurt anyone. So whilst I put this wall up to protect other people, I was protecting myself as well. And one thing led to another, out on the gay scene, having a fabulous time. And I was asked if I would like to work on the door at what was then the biggest gay and lesbian club in the country, G-A-Y. So it would be taking the tickets as people came in and queries and things like that. And also when the acts came to the stage door, I would meet them, take them to the dressing room. So I was able to, I met celebrities and things. So it was fabulous. And what we had one night, we had a, an HIV AIDS fundraiser with Crusade. And I and they were all in their uniforms there. And I did the night in drag because when there was something special, I did the door in drag because it just added something to it. Had a great time. And I stood talking to this chap and I only know him as John. And he was the first person that I openly said how I, I had HIV, how I'd contracted it. And but I'd been told I'm the only one. And he laughed. He did swear. And he, he said to me, that, no, don't believe that don't believe that. He said, because I can tell you, I personally know too. And from there on, uh, for, uh, that was my light bulb moment that I, I knew he just confirmed what I really knew deep down. I wasn't alone. And unfortunately, my health then declined and well, there was a lot of stuff happened. I medically retired from British Airways because they gave me an ultimatum that if I went sick, they would terminate my contract they would fire me but they'd already written to the hospital and they knew that I had full-blown AIDS and that's actually how I found out was receiving a copy of the letter that said I had full-blown AIDS and so when I left there I 
moved up to Birmingham. And a couple of years later, Birmingham had a social worker called Mark Simmons, the amazing Mark Simmons. And it was talking to Mark that lit the, I've always been a pathfinder, but I think Mark actually lit the flame for the activist. And just because somebody says this thing, don't believe it. You, know, don't, you, you question it. You have a right to question things. And that's what I did. Um, and really, from there, I, I, I joined the Lesbian Gay Switchboard in West Midlands. I did that for seven years. Uh, and uh, also, I was a volunteer for the Terence Higgins Trust. And I arranged their Birmingham Pride entry for 2003. I did all that arrangements. And I think it was all that going to the candlelight vigils and going to different things with regards to HIV, also London Pride. Pride was Pride is a protest. It was about us fighting Section 28. And so this activist really has always been in there and being able to then focus it and channel it more. But at the back of my mind, there was all this that if I was being told that, that I was alone, how many other people are out there who are also being told the same thing? So in 2002, I contacted the Haemophilia Society and it just so happened that pure coincidence they'd had three calls from three other guys asking exactly the same thing. Was there any information or support for gay men with haemophilia? We were asked, would we like to form a group, which we did. And in 2004, I was flown out to Bangkok, of all places, to the World Federation of Haemophilia to unveil the, uh, you don't have to be straight to take fat rate men's health booklet. And it was uh, basically a, a practical guide that we put together, gay men speaking to others, that these are some of the things that, you know, we pointed out. Um, and really, it's gone from there. <laughs> so I think that's all really, having gone from a bit of a horror story, it's turning and becoming a bit more positive, isn't it? Do you, in your LGBT ambassador role now come across many people who are gay in the bleeding disorders community and do they are they able to be freely open about it or is this something that is still kept secret by people there's still a lot of stigma flying around and I think that a lot a lot of that is fear um especially within our community um the shadow of AIDS, yeah, it, it has a major impact. I know personally of just over a dozen people, and mm -hmm. since I've become ambassador, I've been, I've made contact with about another six. So they are there, and one of them, in fact, I asked and I saw, did you have a look on the Haemophilia Society website because my information is there, and he told me that no, he didn't think about that because he just assumed that. The Haemophilia Society, the same as the NHS and doctors, wouldn't want to know. And basically, he'd been asking questions and been shut down. My fears and the things I was being told in the 80s were, are still very much alive today. And also, if we look at the world at the moment, anybody who says LGBT rights or equality or anything like that, you're being cancelled, shut down, you're blamed as woke. So I, I can understand why people are being silent but also my feeling is that as ambassador 
everybody who decides to be in the shadows or if they want to be in open and out and proud, I, I will represent all of them. And those who are, especially those in the shadows who do feel isolated and alone, who feel that there's nobody on their side, they're the people that I need to reach and they're the people that I need to be able to support. But also by them knowing that I'm here, they will feel recognised, which is exactly what I did when I met others, that I'm not alone and as things have progressed. And I have to say, this team with the Haemophilia Society, it's, I actually, for, I think for the first time since leaving British Airways, I actually feel part of a team again. I feel part of something and I'm proud to be part of this. That's really nice to hear. So one of the things I was just thinking then is that there's a bit of a move amongst healthcare professionals at the moment to talk to people with bleeding disorders about their sexual activity and whether they need help, support, additional physiotherapy or whatever. Do you think that people who are gay are happy to say, I'm gay, I'm out? Or is it, I think I live in a bit of a London, North London bubble. There's every kind of sexuality walking down my high street and that's absolutely fine. But is it easy to say to your healthcare provider that you've known for 15 years maybe that actually you're not straight? And what we're talking about is nonsense because we don't understand? It's not easy at all, no, because I think that what the one thing that everybody is terrified of is, is being judged. Yeah, And it's that thing. We hear stories of the coming out. But if you actually think about it, as, as a gay as a gay person or LGBT person, you're constantly coming out. So you come out to your parents, then you've got to come out to your haemophilia centre director, your haemophilia nurses, and then your, your, your boss at work and your colleagues. And you've got this constant cycle of this fear building up. Are you going to be rejected or what are you going to be faced with? And thankfully, we have moved a long way and people are more accepting and it's like, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> great, which is fantastic. But the other thing being is that, yes, when you've known your haemophilia centre staff for the length of time that you have and you've kept that secret, it is difficult to then suddenly say, oh, by the way. And one of the things that I'm, I'm working on at the moment with the society is about language and I'm going to be more visible within the community, going to haemophilia centres, talking to staff and listening to them if they've got concerns, what they are and how we can get around that. Um, but the other thing is that it starts at the very beginning because I, I know, for instance, I've got a friend who took her son and daughter to the hospital and the first thing that the doctor said to the girl was, have you got a boyfriend yet? And she looked and she said, what if I like girls? And this doctor was just completely stunned into silence, didn't know what to say and just blustered and like they do. And, and then he said, we won't talk about that. And, and that was it. It's like we're in the 21st century. So good for her. Really good for her. So what I was just going to say, actually, when I was still working at Great Wall Street, I used to do the sex and drugs and rock and roll chat at some kind of age that I thought was a bit appropriate. And I did used to always say to the boys, you got a girlfriend or a boyfriend yet? And some of them actually used that as an opportunity to later on come back and say, actually, yeah, I have got a boyfriend. And I did the same for the girls as well. So I think it's about 
us being more open in the conversations and the words that we use. Also, I would say just what you've done there is, is, yeah. is amazing because yeah. what you've done is you've created a safe space for them to come back when they're ready to say, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. blah. And I, when I was comfortable in my skin enough to say, look, this is who I am. I can't do anything about my voice. Even now, I have major problems because people don't believe that I'm a man on the phone. <laughs> and it's really quite draining. Yeah. But the fact being is that because it was like, here I am, world, this is me. And I know not everybody can do that. And if they go to the hospital and they, somebody just says to them, how are you doing? And it should be complete care because the thing is, if you're only focusing on the haemophilia, but you're not, you've got no idea of what's going on in that person's life, people do take risks. And one of the things that we addressed in the first booklet and the other subsequent booklet was that, for instance, gay men, if you're going to go on Hampstead Heath, you're going to go cruising in laybys, maybe you should have treatment because if the worst were to happen, you get attacked, you get mugged, having treatment in your system might just save your life. The other thing is you might meet the person of your dreams, have fabulous wild sex, and you haven't got to worry about it because you've had treatment. There's a good yin and yang kind of thing here, but it's this basic self-awareness and safety that, and also when boys, when they start puberty, their bodies are going to start changing. Things are going to happen. And I've heard some horror stories over the years where people think that they've, if there's blood, they're being judged or there's something wrong. And how does a 15-year-old say to his mum, I've got to have treatment because I've been playing with myself? It, you, you don't. Haemophiliacs don't. We, we, we cape more than anything. We can have bits hanging off. No, I'm fine. Um, it, it's, it's getting them at the, the right age for them to feel comfortable. And, and the other thing, of course, is that with regards to sexual health, that just because we've got haemophilia, nobody's actually saying to our lads about checking for testicular cancer, for lumps, being aware of your body. You can tell when you've got a bleed coming, or thankfully now with the newer treatments, that's, that's almost not applicable, but you know how you feel. But these are the things that we should be aware of and making our youngsters aware of because we're not like the public. We are actually an intelligent group of people because with our haemophilia doing our injections, everything, we have got a better awareness. And, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a failure. I just think that if you're only focusing on haemophilia and not the person, then how can you tailor the most appropriate care for that person? Yeah, couldn't agree more. So I suppose we're sitting here now, and when we first asked you to do this, we hoped that there might be some positive news from the contaminated blood inquiry. Yeah. We can't have this conversation without at least touching on that in some way. So I guess what are your hopes for the future of that and the impact that will have on the community? My hope has never gone away that it's always been that we get answers, we get the truth, and justice is seen to be done. I'm not driven by money. I, I sit here right now with all of these different pathogens floating around in my body. Thankfully, I'm still here at the age of 54. I've had many sell-by dates, and I've danced with the devil a few times and come close to the edge. And I can tell you the darkness does take you. And 
I suffer from PTSD and phobic anxiety disorder. So that can't be taken away with any amount of money. But justice does need to be done. And I know that compensation is the only way that they can actually show some kind of redress for it. For the community, the same. We, we need closure now. We need to be able to exist in peace and perhaps live in peace for however long we've got left. We know, sadly, that still people are dying at the rate of one every 96 hours. And that's a frightening statistic because every time you say goodbye to somebody, it steps another close, it's another step closer to you. I have every belief, every faith in Sir Brian and his team. And if he can deliver the answers and the truth that we've been searching for, then I know that I can rest. The sad thing is, what's driven so many people for all these years fighting this battle, if the end is soon and justice is delivered, and I'm not going to mention this government, but if, they, if, if it comes to the conclusion that we would like, the right conclusion in my eyes, then I wonder how many people will sadly pass because that fight and that drive, the thing that's kept them going, won't be there anymore. But the other thing is, when I say the truth, by getting to the truth, and officially from a public inquiry, all of the myths, all of the false narratives, and all of the divisions that have been allowed to fester for 40 years with regards to HIV, with this good AIDS, bad AIDS kind of line, I've always hated that. And I think that when Sir Brian reports, because it will be laid out as to what happened, then everybody needs to come together. All of the HIV organisations that have stayed quiet, they all need to come together and we move forward together so that we can end HIV by 2030, because it's possible. Down here in, in Brighton, I'm part of the UNAIDS Fast Track City uh, programme, and we are so close. We are in touching distance. Our figures down here are amazing, and London and other cities across the UK as well. We've got the opt-out. Uh, for HIV, hepatitis C testing in A&E. That's fantastic. There are, there's all these medications. So it's changed completely. And all of these thoughts that are in the past, we all need to wake up, come into the 21st century, work together and move forward. But also with regards to haemophilia, we have to really be alert and aware that the same disaster isn't allowed to happen again to this generation and those babies that haven't been born yet and I don't want us to be led blindly down another road where tragedies are waiting because of profits again. So I think it would appear at least in in the west that getting a diagnosis of HIV now is not the disaster that it was because as you've just said there's all those treatments and People are living many years with HIV. How do we make sure we don't forget the ones who didn't survive? And I think World AIDS Day is great. It really celebrates living with HIV, but it doesn't really focus on haemophilia. Should we do something different to remember the haemophiliacs who've died because of HIV and hepatitis C? There are a couple of things that 
I've been involved with over the years, I think would honour our dead. I'm working very closely with my friend Ash Kotak with AIDS Memory UK, and we're trying to, still trying to all get arranged and built an AIDS, a national AIDS memorial, because there, there isn't anything. Look how quickly things pop up for other disasters. Here we are, over 40 years on from the AIDS crisis officially starting, and there isn't a national memorial. We have local ones. Down here in Brighton, I was at the unveiling of the, the Brighton Memorial, and I was part of that to represent the Haemophilia community. And yeah, that's a memory that will always stay with me. And even when I go past the, the memorial now, I get a chill go down my spine because I think it's so beautiful. It is beautiful and the way it's been done. But it's sad because some cities have, but not a national one. So what message is that sending? With regards to the haemophilia community, I think that because it's just been this fight for justice for so long, there's almost been this diversion that the focus and attention, instead of it being for everybody and our community moving forward together, there is this division of, well, there's the infected, the non-infected, and they, people do know, they know about the history, but it's still almost like the taboo. And the only, for me, the only way that we can honour those people is by keep speaking their names, by keep remembering them. I mean, we have the Remembrance Service later this week and every year. And, yeah, we need a memorial so that people can go and feel that if they want to sit there and, and remember, then, that, then they can. But it's something that their lives weren't for nothing. But also that ties in with the inquiry, how important it is to get the justice and the truth, then that way their lives, are bit, what happened to them, they've been vindicated and they didn't die for nothing because we have got a conclusion and we have then seen changes moving forward. And I think we should just say here that whilst we've talked about haemophilia throughout all of this, we don't just mean haemophilia. So we mean anybody with a bleeding disorder who was infected, anybody who had a blood transfusion who was infected, but also the wives who were infected and the impact that has happened beyond the infected, so the affected as well, who continue to be affected, even when their maybe their dad or their brother has sadly died, but the impact is still there on everyday people with haemophilia or other bleeding disorders with that family history. Yes, definitely. When I speak, as, as I say haemophilia, as a severe haemophiliac or person living with haemophilia, but yes, I am here for all bleeding disorders and I everything you just said and when you think about it we've got so many mums in our community who were effectively told back then they they killed their own children or they harmed their own children because they the mums gave us our injections they're riddled with guilt and here they are they've watched for those who are still alive my mum my mum has watched 50 years of pain and torment and abuse been inflicted on me because there was the schemes, there's different governments. And you think all the times we've been to parliament. And although my mum has been on the protest lines where she stood there holding banners and she's, she's said to me that there's been times where she's just felt completely helpless. She doesn't know what to do. And she feels the pain. She's mopped up the blood, the sweat, the tears, the sick. And that, that will never end. And there's no recognition for the parents at the moment, whether, they're, whether they lost their little boys 
or their sons, yeah. daughters, yeah. or whether we are still alive. They, they've watched and they are still our parents. And that, that mustn't be forgotten either. So I suppose trying to bring this to some sort of conclusion, what are your hopes for the future for people with infections and those without with bleeding disorders? Safety, first of all. Peace, definitely. I think that, like I touched on, ending HIV by 2030 is, is possible in the West. The pharmaceutical companies could do far more and we could, if, if people in developing countries had access to, to HIV medication better, then we, we could eradicate it. And that is my hope because I, I, people going out, having fun, just living life, and then to be all of a sudden judged and have to face certain deaths still in, in some countries. So AIDS hasn't gone away. It's, it's still there. And just because us in the West here have got all this access to medication and everything, that doesn't mean everybody else does. So we need to be aware of that. But also with regards to the bleeding disorders, yeah, better treatments, safe treatments, of course. The care has got to be all-encompassing and it's, it's about the, the, the people. And actually, of course, I have to say equality. It doesn't matter who you are. The fact is that you should be cared for and treated the same way as everybody, not face any discrimination. And I could sit here for a long time telling you some of the things that I've been subjected to within the last 10 years. And education, we need to educate people more. And yeah, we, we can change the world in our small world if we work together. Thank you, Mark, for sharing so many personal reflections on being diagnosed with and living with HIV for so many years and for your work with the LGBT community within bleeding disorders and more generally. One of the things that just struck me was that we should never forget. I hope that we don't, but in order to do that, we should do something that you said, which is we should keep speaking their names. I hope that we continue to do that and to remember those that we've lost, as well as those who are still here, whether they are infected or affected by HIV themselves. Thank you.